The Education Channel supports individual educational goals and encourages creativity for all. Visit uctv.tv slash education. Hi, I'm Megan Buchter. I'm the director of the Fowler Center for Business as an Agent of World Benefit at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University. At the Fowler Center, we run a program called Aim to Flourish that strives to teach students around the world about the UN Sustainable Development Goals and businesses' role in helping to achieve them. As part of the program, students conduct interviews of business leaders or social entrepreneurs and then write up stories which gets pu- get published on our Aim to Flourish website. You can see that we have almost 3,000 stories published on our Aim to Flourish website to date. As part of the program, we also do the annual Flourish Prizes. So every year we look at all of the stories published within the calendar year and we go through a process, narrow them down, have a jury read the stories, and end up with 17 winners, one for each of the 17 sustainable development goals. Today, I have the honor of being here with our our winning team for global goal number eight, Decent Work and Economic Growth. I have Professor Charles Cho from the York University Schulich School of Business, his student Sarah Abdu, and Eric Dales from Tomga Designs. Thank you so much to all of you for being here with me today. Professor Cho, I'd like to start with you by asking you about how you use Aim to Flourish in your class and some of the outcomes that you've seen from using the program. Sure, thank you for um, having me. Um, so just a bit of context of how I got to find out about um, this wonderful program called Aim to Flourish. Um, I was at a conference on sustainability education and I was still in uh, uh, faculty at Essex Business School in Europe at that time. And I met uh, the former um, executive director, Claire Sommer, uh, who presented um, this project, this initiative. I think at that time it was relatively recent, and uh, I was fascinated by the idea of having students go in the field and uh, doing some inquiries and writing a story, getting published. So at the time, um, actually, I left soon after, uh, for professional reasons, relocated to the shooting school business in Toronto, my first class I taught was uh, in winter 2018, and I actually used it right away. I um, hadn't used it in France and used it. Um, I got a lot of support from, from, uh, from, from Claire, from you at the time, you're still here. And the first time I used it in my uh, class called Sustainability Accounting and Accountability class. So even though the name sounds like an accounting class, uh, you know, Sarah may even confirm later that it's broader than that, uh, wider than that. And I really made sure that these assignments gets in the course outline um, with, uh, I think, a 25% grade uh, individual assignment. Uh, I mean, it's important to highlight the individual assignment because it allows me to balance um, group work that we do in this class with individual work. And I, I know that, I understand that aim to flourish can be done with, with teams and pairs, but I wanted to have it as an individual, which my class has allowed. Uh, the experiential learning component was, I think, uh, the most um, convincing for me to, to include it, um, have a contact with a real, real business person for students. And that class, by the way, included, uh, includes uh, both undergraduate and graduate program, students, like MBAs and Sarah's BBA students. So uh, learning about sustainability initiatives, innovations, which helps the sustainability development goal uh, from a real person leader interviewing this person, um, I think it's, it's invaluable. So to me, it was a very um, uh, fruitful um, assignment. I think students generally enjoyed it very much. Um, 
They, we're going to talk about it maybe later in, in some of the, the things that it can run into, but I think at the end it's, it's very um, gratifying, rewarding, uh, allows also learn more in depth about the SDG and how in practice businesses are, are doing and what they're doing to, to reach them. It also provides some networking opportunities um, and jobs. So in my view, it's an all-win-win um, situation, in my view. Thank you so much. Yes, I remember meeting with you in January of, of 2018. We had just launched our new website. Um, and I was surprised to hear that you were teaching an accounting class. But now I always use you as an example of how Aim to Flourish can be used in a variety of courses, not just a traditional sustainability type course or ethics type course, um, but how it can really fit into a variety of different courses, including accounting. Um, so I talk about you a lot. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, no, thank you. Um, and thank you for talking a little bit about how you use it in your in your course. Yes, we do have professors that use it individually and use it in groups. And it's nice to see the different variety um, and undergraduate, graduate. So it's nice to see all of that kind of in, in one course. Sarah, um, can you talk a little bit about your experience going through the going through the Aim to Flourish assignment and how that went for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, so for starting off, I was really trying to find a company to basically interview and I was going, I wanted to, it to be a Canadian like local company that I would kind of be able to connect with. And so, um, I was looking through a lot of, uh, lists of, you know, sustainable, like local uh, companies. And, um, I came across Tomga and, uh, I really liked, I really liked their products. So when I was browsing the website, I was like, oh, these, these things are really, really nice. They're so cute. And so, um, the other part I saw their website, which had a lot of information about their kind of sustainability impacts. A lot there was a blog on just how the story kind of went about, and it sort of gave me a little bit more insight of how sustainability is really like integrated into every part of the business. So um, from there, I contacted uh, uh, Yana and Eric, and um, we we spoke about it and. Uh, it was really, really great. And I think I wrote a lot um, just because I wanted to do justice for, you know, all the work that has gone into creating a sustainable uh, clothing company, especially in an industry that, you know, it, it, this is a big challenge, especially for a small company that doesn't have that um, kind of like power and influence that, for example, like a brand like Zara has to like change its supplier uh, relationships. So I, I really liked um, how they were sort of um, being able to piggyback off of using like um, Tencel and all these uh, different uh, existing fibers to sort of um, in integrate sustainability in a way like right off the bat rather than kind of waiting and, and sort of waiting till things are pick up a little bit. So I really like that aspect. And um, uh, yeah, we, I kind of I, I when I wrote it, I didn't think it would kind of uh, get this far. I was just, you know, really interested in the story and I wanted to kind of get what they were doing out there just because it's so important to be that kind of example. And if a small company can do it, I think like big companies have a massive role to sort of play in kind of improving this specific industry. Yeah, I was I was just rereading your story today um, before this conversation to make sure that I remembered everything about it. And it is wonderful. Um, it is longer, which is absolutely fine. Our stories really very, very in length. But one of the things that I really like is the way that um, you talk about how Tomga meets many of the sustainable development goals. So obviously, we're here today because this group has won 
the flourish price for global goal number eight, decent work in economic growth. But you can absolutely see how how this story relates to global goal number 12, responsible consumption and production and global goal number 15, life on land. Um, and so and so many others, uh, which are highlighted in the story and, and on the website. So I think you did a really excellent job of hitting a lot of different points of how the company is doing good things. Yeah, I think I, I think that that one fits the best just because the reason it was founded was after the Rana Plaza um, incident in uh, Bangladesh. And that was that was sort of kind of, I guess, uh, like a pivotal moment from from what I remember. Yeah. Um, before we get to Eric and let him tell us a little bit about that, I just want to ask you um, to maybe comment a little bit on your actual interview. Did you get a chance to do it in person? Did you do it kind of virtually? Um, and how how did you get, go about setting that up and and conducting that interview? Yeah, so um, we did it virtually. Um, this was before before everything, but um, it was it was pretty smooth. I recorded it um, on my phone just in case anything kind of went wrong. And uh, from there, I sort of had like notes on the side as well, just so I didn't have to kind of go back. So I was taking notes as uh, we did the interview. And then from there, um, I had my backup as well. And how did you find Tomga Designs? I believe it was on like one of those lists of like uh, like new sustainable, like local companies. I was kind of looking through a lot of um, like blogs and things like that that feature sustainable like consumption brands and things like that. That's great. Thank you so much. Well, Eric, I'd love to have a chance for you to, to uh, Sarah introduced you a little bit, but I'd love to have a chance for you to get a chance to tell us all about your company and uh, the inspiration behind starting it. That was, that was the best intro I've ever received um, from someone who doesn't work for Tonga. So I think there's a, there's a clear reason why Sarah, um, Sarah's essay won this competition because Sarah didn't, you know, from the first time that um, she interviewed Diana and from the first times we, we, uh, we read the notes about it, uh, it was really clear that she was looking into the topic deeply um, and that she actually cared about the relationship between uh, our business and in general business and the SDGs and sustainability. Um, and that's worth really noting because you do see a lot of surface level stuff in the industry. You see a lot of greenwashing. Um, so Sarah did do her homework on this. She obviously had fantastic support through uh, Professor Cho and and um, all of you guys. So first of all, just thankful to be included in this and to have us, our little you know business um, and passion project as uh, a subject for all of this. That's just, that's fantastic. So um, if you read Sarah's piece, you do actually get a really good background on Tamga, but I'll give you a bit of kind of the, the firsthand um, account. Uh, we, uh, my wife, now wife, uh, Yana and I started Tamga in Bangladesh. Um, we were working, living and working there for three years um, in the world of international development. So our, our careers and um, our whole setup, the way we met, um, our university and postgrad uh, education was all in international development. So I, I grew up with the goal to work for the UN, um, and I did end up working for the UN. Uh, Yana wanted to work internationally as well. She was working for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She worked for a cholera hospital in Dhaka. She worked for Save the Children as well. Um, but we were really committed as a couple to you know getting out there and actually using our skills, our education, and our privilege um, to actually help. You know, to use our careers and the time that we spend in our work to actually help with whether that be environmental issues, whether it be social issues. Um, so we got out there. We were um, after a few years living in New York and working there, uh, went to Dhaka. We arrived right after the Rana Plaza collapse, as you mentioned, and it just kind of hit us um, right away. I mean, 
you can't work in DACA in any uh, industry or in any sector or even live in DACA without being kind of uh, surrounded by the garment industry. So I was working in poverty reduction yeah, and I was working in child protection, public health. It was all interrelated with the garment industry because so many people in that country work in the garment industry. And as Canadians, we started to really relate it back to, okay, you know, this is a brand, this is a Canadian brand over here that's uh, employing all these people that's working here. And in cases like the Rana Plaza collapse, you know, there were, con- there, there were clear cases there where, um, you know, you could see tags of these brands that we liked and knew well from Canada um, in the rubble. And so, you know, for us, we, we wanted to do whatever we can to ensure that you had kind of good global actors that were working in this industry because it wasn't a story that was getting back to the consumer. Whether you're in a, you know, a, a mall in Europe or in Australia or Canada, you're simply not getting the experience that the people who are working in this industry were getting, by and large. I mean, you have a wide range, but um, we, we, we started making, Yana was making some clothing. We were selling it on Etsy. We were kind of playing with the idea of making like a full transparency project where you could make clothing. You could share exactly who made it, where the fabric came from, everything like that. Um, it turned out that it caught on really well. And just gradually, we found that, you know, our way to live uh, a life where we could actually help to achieve goals like you see in the MDGs and then the SDGs, which were just coming about when we uh, when we were working there, uh, was to actually get out there and do something. So rather than being in the NGO world and kind of accusing the brands in DACA, which we I was at many of those meetings, I did a lot of it where you're trying to get brands to kind of um, pay up for their uh, roles in the Rana Plaza collapse or the Tazreen fire that happened over there or what have you, we decided, we got fed up with it. We decided we wanted to do it ourselves. So um, we went out in uh, 2016, we left our jobs. We went to Indonesia. Uh, we went across Bangladesh, Indonesia, Vietnam, met with different fabric mills, different suppliers. I mean, we, we just showed up on the doorstep of, of huge businesses and asked questions. Um, we, co- we cold called, we emailed, and we just started piecing together uh, fabrics, dyes, you know, building relationships and wastewater management uh, with different labor um, organizations that oversee labor and starting to piece together a supply chain that we could actually feel good about and that we could have full transparency. Um, so eventually we ended up in Indonesia. It was a great place for it. Uh, we went all across Java, Sumatra, Bali. We ended up with fabric mills that we work with, um, who, who work with fantastic, uh, eco-friendly fabrics with full traceability that, um, we can use dye houses where we actually have visibility into things like wastewater and the chemicals that are used. Uh, we have a partner in Sumatra that does reforestation. So we can actually give back a little bit, um, to an organization there and to the ecosystem there. And then we have fantastic sewing factory in Bali and packaging suppliers there as well. So the you know, this is, it feels like forever ago now because we've, you know, we vaulted ourselves in by, by starting with a Kickstarter campaign. Um, we raised 20, I think it was 26 or $27,000. Uh, and then we just jumped into the world of being a startup, uh, marketing and PR and, you know, getting onto those lists that Sarah mentioned where people can discover us, you know, about sustainable brands and, you know, trying to share our story. And now where we're at, you know, four years in, um, since launching at the end of 2017, or end of 2016, sorry. Um, we are in a place where we've been able to grow and we can actually be a business that's sustainable financially as well as uh, in terms of our materials and in terms of our labor. So 
Um, you know, I don't want to go on too long about it. It's obviously a passion project. It's been very, very difficult uh, over time because of what Sarah was mentioning. This, being a small guy in this industry isn't easy. You have to buy fabrics at certain quantities. You have to carry a lot of inventory because of that. You have to put a lot of money out. You have to find ways to raise money. You have to find ways to market. Um, and so being a part of uh, something like this that recognizes what Tumga is doing um, is really great. And I just wanted to thank all of you guys for, uh, for recognizing it. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I could probably just sit here and listen to your story all, all day and forget asking any more questions. <laughs> so um, thank you. It's really, really fascinating what you're doing and really amazing work. How do you, how do you find the suppliers? So you said you, you trekked through Bangladesh and Indonesia and then you found them in person and those are the ones that you're working with now, or are you continuously finding new suppliers that meet the standards that you've set? It's a good question because that was one of the biggest um, barriers that we had starting out as a small player was that we didn't want to buy stuff. We didn't want to buy fabric retail um, because like, like say meters off a roll of fabric at a fabric retailer in Asia, like we're not going to be able to know exactly where the fibers come from and, and which dye chemicals and finishing chemicals and preparation chemicals are used. So we had um, some skills, you could call them, by living in Asia, living overseas for so long that we were we felt okay going into areas that were maybe more less tourist friendly, you know, finding places to stay, finding places to sleep, renting a motorcycle, you know, literally just, we just went and started asking questions. And um, I found actually, side note, working in development, that's how you get jobs in development as well. You, you go to the country, you meet the organization, you meet people in a bar, you know, whatever you need to do to build those relationships. Um, so essentially it was going to the doorsteps of fabric mills and getting turned away from, you know, 19 out of 20. Um, and then emailing people in Austria at a raw material supplier and, and went to Jakarta to meet with a dye company, so on and so forth. So a lot of kind people that helped us along the way. Um, during COVID, it's been really different because we actually had a, a fabric mill go out of business um, that makes our knit like T-shirt fabrics. Um, because of COVID and because they had some financial stress before, within a couple of months earlier this year, they just let us know that they were closing down. So we had to find a new knit mill not being able to go to Indonesia for the last year. And um, we've had to do a similar thing with some packaging. Um, and it's turned out that using WhatsApp and, and uh, almost exclusively WhatsApp, because Indonesians love WhatsApp, we have been able to build those relationships of trust and be able to get people to refer us to different companies and to really feel like we can know what's going on at these facilities um, beyond a reasonable doubt without actually having to go there, which, of course, hopefully when this is all over, the first thing we're doing is, is flying to Indonesia, but that's not for a little while now. So That's great. And where are your clothes made overseas or are they made in Canada? Are you just buying the fabric and they're made in Canada? Yeah, no, they're they're made. We we actually just okay. So that you can have. I don't want to get too technical, but you have your first tier supplier, which is like a sewing factory. A lot of your brands will talk about labor and um, conditions in that factory. Then you have your second tier, which would just be one level behind your fabric mill, um, and then you have your printing mills. You have your yarn spinning, raw materials, all behind that. So what we do is we actually buy directly from the fabric mill. Um, and uh, we deal directly with the printing mills as well. And then we get it shipped to our sewing factory, which is in Bali, which is a fantastic small team um, that we've worked with for several years now. Uh, and then they ship it over to us in Canada. We warehouse it here in Aurora, um, and then we ship it to our customers around the world. Um, we actually recently also this year started doing everything from the start, the raw material all the way to the finished uh, 
to the doorstep of the customer, we went carbon neutral. So we started working with carbon offset partners to, uh, to offset that entire path. Um, but, uh, yeah, fortunately we have partners, uh, that are really communicative and they're really great. And those relationships are what our business really relies on. Great. Well, unfortunately I don't have any of your clothes, but I have looked at your website and your designs are beautiful. The website is beautiful. Um, so I just wanted to mention that my partner, Yana and our, our fashion designer, um, Anna, who lives in Vietnam, actually, she's Spanish, lives in Vietnam. The, the team of Anna and Yana, we've been three of us since the start. Uh, they are all responsible for the whole aesthetic, all of the designs, and they do a, a brilliant job because product first, like Sarah said, you notice the product first, any sustainable business won't be able to last if you don't create great products. And if you can't compete with the big guys, then there's no reason to be out there trying to compete. So, you know, first, that's always what our philosophy has been is create great products. I tend to handle everything behind the scenes <laughs> behind, you know, supply chain. And so that's what you'll hear from me more. Well, that's, I mean, that's a really important part of the business. And that's, I mean, that's part of what's making you sustainable and making you this business for good and, and bringing this story to light through the Flourish Prizes for Global Goal Number 8, Decent Work and Economic Growth, is that behind the scenes supply chain, um, you know, operations, what you're doing. So um, before I get a chance to, to bring Charles and Sarah back, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about more about your partnership with the Sumatran Rainforest. Oh, yeah. So we actually we just finished up a campaign on Black Friday where we do um, for the last three years, we've done something called Forest Friendly Friday, um, where we so our partners from from day one, we partner with the Sumatran Orangutan Society, um, which works in the looser rainforest, which is um, the last place on Earth where um, more than five critically endangered species all coexist in the wild. It's uh, Sumatran orangutans, uh, Sumatran rhino, Sumatran tigers, elephants, um, sun bears and one that I'm missing there as well. But it's a fantastic and incredibly important and biodiverse um, place in Sumatra. And um, that rainforest is being logged at a rapid rate for um, palm oil is the main driver. But then a secondary driver there that doesn't get a lot of um, attention is the wood pulp industry. And a lot of that wood pulp actually goes towards viscose fibers. Um, so viscose rayon fabric is made from wood. Um, and a lot of the wood that goes in there up to 70% is from ancient and endangered forests that should never be logged in the first place. So we um, found that out early on in Indonesia and we decided we wanted to work with a partner who was on the ground really. Um, they're protecting and they're restoring. They have reforestation sites. We've gone and stayed with them in the forest and they have reforestation sites that are, they're working in very dangerous conditions um, and against all odds, basically buying land and restoring it right on the edge of the rainforest um, and protecting the species that live there. So we give 1% through 1% for the planet to them. Uh, we also have a Trees Please Tea, a t-shirt that gives $10 from every sale. And then through um, Forest Friendly Friday, uh, we give 20% through that whole sale to them as well. So whenever we can, uh, we use the the margin that we have uh, from our sales and and the room that we have in um, financially to support that project. And it's one of the it's honestly it's one of the most rewarding parts of the business is that when we can give some of our our uh, gross margin, some of our you know cash that we can generate to an an, uh, an impact like that, and still be able to to have some profit to keep the business going, that's a big point of pride for us. So it's it's been a fantastic partnership. That's great. Thank you so much. I can see why Sarah's story was, I hate calling it long because it's, you know, it's still on the website and it's a great story, but I can see why she had so much information to, to put into that story. 
Um, how was your interview with Sarah and, and what did you get out of doing that interview with the student? Yeah, so Yana, my partner Yana did the interview and um, you know, it was for, for us, like, and especially a um, Toronto-based student, um, you know, it's fantastic whenever we can give the time to, to be able to share some of the information from our story. Like we're, we're still in the middle of our story, but whenever someone's interested and ask questions like, how can I do that? How can I find suppliers? It's, it's really great to pass on what we've kind of learned at some difficulty. So it was clear from us, like we get a fair amount of requests. We can't actually um, say yes to all of them. But Sarah actually worded her request in a very compelling way that you could tell that she actually cared about what was going on. And in that case, we can't help ourselves. So um, we didn't have to do any of the heavy lifting on this, though. I mean, Sarah did a fantastic job uh, writing about um, Tamga. And it was amazing to read, like I said before, you know, someone who had kind of taken in and thought about our story and was able to actually express it so well. So, you know, in terms of the whole Flourish uh, prize and everything, you know, the credit really uh, goes to Sarah for being able to communicate it like that. Thank you. And congratulations, Sarah. That's those are some really nice words about you. Thank you so much. Sarah, do you obviously it sounds like you did your homework before um, before the interview. And, um, you know, that probably indicates the sense that you that you already know about this kind of business for good movement and have some sort of passion um, for this this area, for this topic. But do you feel like like after your interview, your mindset was changed at all, that you learned something that you didn't think that you were going to learn? Yeah. So I think the, the reason I took um, uh, Professor Charles uh, Cho's uh, class is because it really takes a deep dive on, you know, the concept of sustainability itself. So it, it kind of looks to uncover all the greenwashing, like really dig deep and um, this was in my third year. So at that point, I've taken already a lot of like courses about sustainability. And I saw that there was a lot of fluff. So I saw I wanted to take this class and it really showed me where I should sort of look in terms of companies that are really targeting the problem, like from from the core. And so what I really learned was how these supply chains can really, really work. I think part of, part of the main learning for me was just how complex it is and how if you really try you can actually make that kind of impact it just it's just about the kind of effort that a company needs to go through just because it's an important issue um i think those those things were really really important for me to see just that it is possible and it's just it is it's not even as challenging for larger players it's just uh it's just like choices and things like that yeah Charles, do you feel like in your class you get mostly students like Sarah that have this this initial interest in sustainability and seeing that from an accounting perspective? Or do you think you get students that are like, well, I'm going to take this class, but I need to be convinced? Well, first, I don't get a lot of students. And I think something is due to this name called accounting and accountability. And then <laughs> when they get my uh, course outline and they get for the first class, I do think that those who stay uh, see some of the topics we will cover because the course outline uh, outlines everything that we're doing. And then I talk about this project and I, I do get some interest in that. So I, th I think a lot of the students, it's an, opt -in, it's an optional uh, elective class. So they're opted in. So they already have a sustainable mindset they want to learn. And I think, um, as Sarah mentioned, we, we, we have this uh, term big project. I think Sarah remembers very well, like they have to analyze this report in a much more um, critical way in some sense to really tear it apart and say what companies are are really reporting about versus what they're really doing. 
Uh, and then on the other hand, you have this individual project, the Aim to Flourish project, which actually um, shows them. And the, the thing I like about being open and having all the SDGs involved is Sarah learned a lot about the supply chain. Well, that's something I don't have to teach and I cannot really teach. It's not my expertise, but she's going to learn through the story on a real, from a real business person. So much more valuable than maybe some the things that we, she can learn in the classroom. And of course, we have all other, uh, many other stories, as you know, like all the students. So from, from my perspective, it's, it's the students come in with some expectations and they see a full spectrum of sustainability. They see the, the greenwashing darker side and then they see this positive, encouraging side of um, social innovation, social entrepreneurship and inspiring. And um, one thing that uh, I, I do now, and Sarah, I think I couldn't, I make the now, uh, dedicated the whole class to have the students share their story. So I managed to rearrange the schedule and uh, it, this year so that now other students want to also um, see what the stories are about and what their other peers are doing. Even though the story will get published, they can read it, it's different when they come for a five-minute pitch to their own peers and you get a lot of interest in that class as well. And I would say like the biggest incentive, of course, is not only to learn about the business, meet the business leader, but also have their stories known. And I think the business leaders are also generally happy to have some exposure, positive exposure on, on what they're doing. And so that's, that's a big um, incentive. And of course, the, the biggest reward is when you reach the point where we have now this uh, award, I think a lot of great stories. But some stand out more than others. And you're right that in, in Sarah's, it was very comprehensive, yet it was... I'm very happy because it reassured me, uh, correlated with a grade. So I, I checked again. I think she had one, you know, a very, very good grade on this one. I, I go, okay, check the, uh, the one who got the, the words are the ones who actually got very good grades. But I tell the students, you can do the story as an assignment. And in very rare cases, you don't have to have it published for you or from the perspective. But that would be a shame. So it's a two-step process. I was able to flourish, um, have a website, but I can use it for my learning purposes, for my pe- uh, teaching purposes. And then they have the real incentive to have their story published. So overall, as, as, as I said, again, it, it's, I think, for the three parties, like me as a facilitator, instructor to give this assignment, I'm learning a lot about the businesses. You can imagine the stories I read it's all over the place. It's great from all over the world. Um, I'm very happy when you have local-based, I mean, I, I encourage local-based businesses, but, you know, sometimes they run out because I mean, there's a limited number that they can really reach out. But also globally, you know, before the pandemic, even Zoom was available, so they would interview people from their home country for international students or anybody they know overseas. And we learn, and then from the business um, perspective, you have great exposure, uh, you get to know the student, you get to know also our program, and you get to know also uh, maybe also by telling the story, uh, interview, you also reflect on yourself a bit more. And from the student, I think it's just a, a full experiential learning process. So it's really, really good. The resource and the support are, are tremendous. Um, you have been so responsive on, on all small or bigger issues that we have. So I advertise it um, you know, to my colleagues. Anyway, I told you, I think my Scottish colleague, I think, introduced you from Scotland. He's going to do it as well. So congratulations. Thank you for the uh, these together it's great so no absolutely thank you i mean getting a chance to sit here and and talk to to you and sarah and eric i mean this is the reason why we do this this is the reason why we run this program and the reason why um you know i've been involved with it for for so many years 
Um, before I give you all a chance to to share any closing thoughts, I just want to ask Eric, um, you know, can you comment on how you see business's role in society? You know, I work in a business school also, and I feel like I'm still working with students that I have to convince sometimes that there is this this place for business to make a positive impact. And so I'm just curious for you to share kind of in your own words um, how you see business's role in society. Well, I. I mean, it's a that's a really good question. It's a it's a fairly complicated one, um, but one that I, I love to talk about, obviously, because, um, you know, if you if you were to live in a, a very small community and you imagine that um, and you had a business that that serves your community, um, maybe it serves some people outside your community as well, but it's based there and employs people in your community. You know, in that small little ecosystem, it's very easy to see why, you know, you need to be doing if you have that that responsibility of, of, uh, paying people, of delivering goods to people or services. Um, it becomes really clear that obviously you need to be a good actor and that you want to deliver value. Um, that doesn't, isn't just going to make you wealthy. I mean, if it does, it's, it's really not sustainable and it would be very visible in a kind of smaller ecosystem. So, I mean, that's the way that we look at it. We just look at it in a global, globalized world where, you know, we don't want to be running a business where, because we know intimately what, you know, what outsourced labor looks like, you know, we know what it looks like to have uh, people working overseas, people who have families, people who have goals and dreams. Um, and, and those people deserve just as much as our neighbors to be able to have some dignity. And, and you know, if, uh, if you want to sleep well at night, <laughs> You know, if you if it, it depends a little bit on on your incentives and your goals, because uh, business can be a lever for uh, just personal gain above all else. Uh, it can. However, if I think you have to look a little bit longer term um, and I think you have to see the value beyond uh, money in the bank account. Um, I don't it, it's very much about money in the bank account. So it's really important that people realize that. But but the value beyond that so that you can be, you know, to be sustainable financially and operationally, you can't be the guy who's pulling the rug out from other people's feet. Um, and that's the way I like to look at it. And that's, you know, I think it's a conversation where it, depending on how people see the world, you're always going to have some people who are going to act uh, for themselves first. Um, but I think more and more people who, who can actually realize and see examples of businesses that can, that can do both, that can actually achieve their personal safe and family, you know, financial goals but also um, do some good in the world. I think you'll you'll find more and more people actually taking part in that when they realize it's possible. Thank you so much. Um, before we wrap up, I just want to give any of you the chance to for any final thoughts, any final questions that you'd like to add. Um, I would just add um, from sort of related to what um, just Eric said about. Pedagogically speaking, in the business school, we have um, you know different paradigms that we teach. And one of them is the Freemanian kind of perspective of everything to maximize the shareholder and the wealth value versus social and environmental issues. And it's always going to be a contradiction. And I think that through this exercise, students, and especially our Schulich students are, we have sort of a reputation for this, to teach this, this kind of concept, to see through this assignment and also for the future that um, you know, Eric just mentioned that uh, after being as a partnership and after giving, you still have a little bit of profit left. And this is where, you know, the, the, the greed mindset and how much is enough. Like, sure, you may, not, you may do these things and you may not become a billionaire like Jeff Bezos, but is it really the purpose of, you know, of life? Is it that that's the end? 
or is it so we have a sufficient means to have a living wage and live prosperously and make other people happier in the environment less damaged so we we discuss all this in the business school and i think this this kind of testimony this kind of story um it comes from from them right it comes from the business like look i'm 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 able to do it i've been this is hard rather than in addition to what we teach them in the classroom so i think from an education perspective uh what we teach in the classroom in the business school especially is complemented by this assignment the experience the real life assignment so they can hear directly from the people who are doing it who have done it successfully uh that this is possible so that's just wanted to add from a from an academic perspective Thank you so much, Charles. Yeah, I think it's really important to connect the, um, you know, the the what we're teaching students in the classroom with what is happening out there in the world, and that's why, um, you know, I love the Aim to Flourish assignment as well because it's not just you know us teaching our students to try to, you know, yeah, you can create a business that's doing good things. It's hey, there are actually businesses out there that are doing it. Go talk to them and see how they did it. Um, so yes, I, I think it's a great assignment, and I, I love getting students you know, out of the classroom, even if that just means onto Zoom to, to get a chance to, to talk to somebody like Eric um, and hear their story and hear what inspired them and how they've created this. So thank you so much for bringing that up. It's been a pleasure to talk to the three of you today, our Flourish Prize winners for Global Goal Number 8, Decent Work and Economic Growth, Professor Charles Cho from the York University Schulich School of Business, and his student Sarah Abdu, and Eric Dales, our, our business leader, our social entrepreneur from Tonga Designs. Thank you so much to the three of you for being here today and congratulations again on your Flourish Prize.